particularly in relation to issues to do with Indigenous Australia, uh, I'm long convinced that uh, it's the Indigenous voices that need to be heard. And often, like when I've been asked to butt out, it's been, well, look, Frank, you're not helping if you're there giving the shorthand answer, which is palatable to the whitefellas. That's not good enough. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Francis Tennyson Brennan is a Jesuit priest, academic and social activist. Known, of course, as Frank, his calm voice and reasoned arguments have been a regular feature of the Australian public conversation on issues such as reconciliation, constitutional change and human rights since at least the 1980s. Paul Keating famously dubbed him the meddling priest, and Philip Adams has called him Australia's Jesuitical juggernaut. Born in Queensland, Frank's the eldest of seven children, the grandson of a judge and the son of Gerard Brennan, who served in the High Court from 1981 to 1998. He was the founding director of UNIA, the Australian Jesuit Social Justice Centre. Frank has published nearly a dozen books and serves as an adjunct fellow at ANU, a law professor at the Australian Catholic University, and a Professor of Human Rights and Social Justice at the University of Notre Dame. He is officially a national living treasure. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be with you. So let's start with your, uh, your upbringing. Uh, you're uh, in a big family. What was it like to grow up with, uh, with that many siblings? Well, I think it was always easiest being the eldest, of course, there was a joke amongst my siblings that I, being the eldest of seven, I would line them up to share out the chocolates and I would go down the line saying, one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. And it took some of my younger siblings some years to understand why that wasn't equitable. Are you all still on good terms? We are. We're seven children and uh, all the others are married and so they've all got their kids and grandchildren and uh, we've all done a variety of things. I wouldn't say that we all get on equally well, but uh, we're a family who have a great love and support of each other. Uh, and you were uh, sent to a Catholic boarding school at age 12, which yes. uh, you've spoken about as being quite a, a wrenching experience in some ways. How did that... It uh, was initially. I mean, I was very homesick the first few months that I went off to boarding school. I've always said I was fortunate in hindsight that it was a school for boarders only. I think I would have found it even more difficult if there'd been a share of day students as well. But uh, after the first few months, I'd have to say that it was quite an enjoyable experience and uh, something which was very bonding. And as I've often said, it was there in Toowoomba and I often was made to feel slightly second class that my father didn't drive a tractor. So that was a way of saying that I think a lot of the sense of competition that you get in a lot of the big city schools, I was spared that and the 60s were great years to be spared those things. Uh, and you were at, then at University of Queensland in the uh, the early 1970s, a fairly political environment, no? It was. As I've often said, 1971, I was a first-year law student and studying politics, and we had the colourful Sir Joe Bielke peterson proclaiming a state of emergency for the conduct of the Springbok rugby tour, and we had a vice-chancellor, none other than Sir Zelman Cowan, who was on his way to becoming Governor-General. So it was quite a good mix. Do you think that uh, uh, in some ways uh, progressives are formed in reaction to, uh, to, to the uh, uh, forces of, of authority? Do you think well, that... I think uh, they were. Joe, do, you, do you credit, uh, credit <clears throat> Joe for some of your uh, uh, social justice tendencies? I would. In fact, uh, Gough Whitlam once joked with me saying, how was it that so many social reformers came out of Queensland in the early 1970s? I said, Gough, it's easy. We had somebody to react to. Yeah. Mainly to Sir J.B. Oakley-Peterson. I think if there hadn't been that sort of colourful, robust character to whom to react, I think my own uh, political development might have been a little slower. And then 
why? What drew you to the Jesuits? Uh, your school wasn't a wasn't a Jesuit school, was no. it? So, so what made you think of the, the Jesuits? My school was being run by a group called the Missionary of the Sacred Heart, and I first of all thought that I would complete my arts degree and then perhaps go off and join the seminary or whatever. Well, those three years went by so quickly and they were so enjoyable. And I was actually, if I may say, doing fairly well at law and I enjoyed it. So I thought, well, I'll hang around and finish the law. But in 1974, I went south and I visited some of the religious communities. And strangely, I went and stayed with the missionaries of the Sacred Heart, the MSCs out at Croydon in Melbourne. And uh, there was a young fellow in training there as an MSC at the time. His name was Patrick Dodson. He was one of the people who urged me to go and check out the Jesuits over at Parkville. And I did. And what I liked about the Jesuits was that Basically, they said, oh, so you've been studying law, you've been studying politics, you enjoy it, you're good at it, don't quite know what we'd do with it, but we'd be very happy to have you. Whereas other groups in the church, it was, oh, well, you know, you've studied law and politics, don't know about that, but come here and do the right thing as a religious or as a priest or whatever. So to me, the Jesuit approach seemed to be a bit more open to basically suggesting that the spirit might be at work in these very worldly attributes that I'd developed. And the interesting thing to me is they didn't uh, take you and train you up into a priest and send you off to ma manage a parish, as, uh, as I suppose one would normally think of as the trajectory into religious leadership. Uh, can you talk us through uh, what happened after you uh, ch joined the Jesuits? Sure. So I joined the Jesuits early 1975. The first couple of years are fairly formative. It's what's called an novitiate. Uh, you do a 30-day silent retreat uh, according to what's set down by Ignatius Loyola and uh, that's pretty demanding but something which is life-shaping. And then after that you do a, a series of what are called experiments for a couple of months at a time. So I remember, for example, I went to Calvary which was a hospice for the dying at Cogra in Sydney. Now, you know, when you're only 21 years of age and mm. for the first time you're encountering death in a day daily situation, uh, that really is quite life-changing, and uh, for me that was a great experience. And then I was sent off to teach in a school in Adelaide for a couple of months. I then worked at an inner-city youth centre in Melbourne for a couple of months. And then one of the more formative experiences for me was going to Redfern in inner Sydney, where I was working with Ted Kennedy, who was the parish priest there, who had worked very closely with the street people, particularly Aboriginal people in and around Redfern at that time. And that was 1976, and it was just while the Senate was considering the Aboriginal Land Rights Northern Territory Bill, and I remember travelling down with one of the Aborigines from Redfern, Len Watson, and we sat in the Senate while that debate was held, and that's the first time I met the great W.E.H. Stanner, the anthropologist. So those sorts of experiences really opened up my eyes to all sorts of possibilities. Paint us a picture of uh, of Ted Kennedy at that at that time because he's uh, that that social justice mission in in the fast-changing Redfern Aboriginal community was, was pretty radical for the era, wasn't it? It was, and the thing about Kennedy was his starting point was always identification with the people themselves. So he was constantly running into trouble with the church authorities, but his thing was that the Aboriginal people had been dispossessed of their lands, that they had entitlement to lands, they had entitlement to self-determination. So, for example, he was instrumental in allowing the Aborigines to come into one of the church buildings and to set up the Aboriginal Medical Service there. And it continues to this day. And he ran into all sorts of trouble with the religious authorities where they were saying, well, this is church land, we need to get appropriate rents, etc., he was for a complete paradigm shift in terms of putting yourself in the shoes of the person who is marginalised, who is disadvantaged, who is Indigenous. And for me, that was something which was very instrumental. I always thought it's an interesting tension in Catholicism to have uh, this extraordinary tradition of social justice and yet uh, a very hierarchical power structure with somebody at the top who is infallible. Uh, does that, has, did Kennedy shape how you think about dissent within the, within the church? He was one who was emblematic of that sort of dissent within the diocesan hierarchy. 
The other thing for me, though, is as a Jesuit, of course, the Jesuit order is, as I have often joked, uh, we are, yes, great exemplars nowadays of social justice, but we are the least democratic religious order in the Catholic Church. <laughs> the only person who is elected in the Jesuits is the Superior General, and that's usually as a life appointment, although in recent years they've been allowed to retire a bit earlier. Uh, but every other person who is a, comes into office in the Jesuits is appointed by someone who is senior to them. So here we are with something which is very hierarchical, but at the same time very consultative. And you actually see this in the personality of Pope Francis, who is, of course, the first Jesuit ever to be a pope. He is highly consultative, but at the same time can be highly dictatorial in that he will consult very broadly, but then he says, well, I'm the boss, I'm the pope, I make the decision, the buck stops here, and that's it. And that mix of things I have generally found in religious life works fairly well, and I'm very happy to say that uh, I've never been appointed to a senior position of authority and with a bit of luck, never will be. <laughs> so uh, it's the uh, it's the late 1970s. You've been with the Jesuits for a couple of years, but uh, you're still Frank rather than Father Frank. Uh, what tell us the rest of the story leading up to ordination? Well, then there's we do a lot of study in the Jesuits. So I'd already studied arts and law. I got admitted to the bar. Um, I then studied an LLM, a Master of Laws, at the University of Melbourne, where I was very fortunate. I had two splendid supervisors. They were Michael Cromlin and Cheryl Saunders, who were two of the great constitutional lawyers that Australia has produced in the academy. And I did a study of Joe Bielke Peterson's street march laws. In fact, this is a delightful side story, if you like, and it's one of the things about being a Jesuit. Uh, during the late 1970s, Joe Bielke Peterson said, the day of the political street march is over, don't bother applying for a permit, you won't get one. So thousands of students and others were arrested for political protest. Well, it was known in Queensland at the time that any young lawyers who were appearing for these protesters, there were instructions out that they were not to be briefed by the Crown ever again. And so it was very difficult to get young lawyers to come and appear for these people. Well, my religious superior said, well, you don't need to earn a living, uh, you can be available. So I used to go up during my holidays and appear in the demonstrator court. And I developed quite good working relationships with some of the police prosecutors. And I remember one day a young fellow who'd worked as a judge's associate, he was up trying to fix up his pay and he ran into a magistrate and he said to the magistrate, how are things? And the magistrate said, oh, he said, I'm in the so-and-so demonstrator court and we've got this flash young Jesuit who's come up from the south putting all of these legal arguments that we can't understand. But the problem <laughs> is he's so polite, we just have to hear him through. So there were those sorts of experiences which were good at the same time as I studied philosophy at Melbourne Uni for a couple of years. And then in the Jesuits, in between our philosophy and theology studies, we usually get sent off to work for two or three years. I was sent off, first of all, to teach Year 10 Mathematics at Xavier College in Melbourne because they didn't really know what to do with uh, a young lawyer who'd been sent into a Jesuit school. But I've often said, Andrew, that was one of the most formative experiences of my life because I was actually allocated what was called the Form 4 Group 6 Mathematics class. They were known as the Veggie Maths class. And needless to say, Form 4, very difficult time of human maturation, one might say, to put it neutrally. So maintaining discipline in the Veggie Maths class in Year 10 is rather mm. demanding. And... I found that I had to develop teaching techniques there where you couldn't be patronising with the boys, but you had to find a way of being able to translate difficult mathematical concepts. And over time, I developed, I think, a pretty good working relationship with that class. Well, as I've often said, years later when I was out in the back blocks arguing about things like Wick with Angry Pastoralists, 
the teaching techniques which I acquired in teaching the veggie maths class stood <laughs> me in very good stead. Namely, that you're dealing with complex concepts, but you're dealing to translate them in ways which are readily comprehensible. So that was also part of the experience. I then had a wonderful time when I had the good fortune to be associate to Justice William Dean when he was on the federal court for mm. a short time. And uh, he and I became lifelong friends and he's someone who I've always found to be an exemplar of what justice and reconciliation should be about. I then had a year at the Melbourne Bar where I was in chambers with a group of fellows who were really outstanding lawyers and that was a great and stimulating experience. Then in 1982, I was appointed as advisor to the Queensland Catholic Bishops on Aboriginal Affairs when Joe Bielke-Peterson was doing battle on issues to do with Aboriginal rights and the Commonwealth Games. So that really gave me the big start in those sorts of issues. And then I came back to Melbourne and studied my theology for four years. At the end of the third year, I was then ordained a priest in 1985 and then got on with what has been my lifetime ministry. And you've continued both to, uh, to, to do activism and to practice, uh, practice law. How did those break down during, uh, du- during, the, during the 1980s? Was most of your time spent in court? Uh, no. In fact, uh, after about 1982, I never appeared in court again. And as I've often said, uh, I mean, if I was wanting to be the sort of practicing lawyer, which I think I would have been capable of doing, uh, this was not the life to do it in because, in a sense, you can only be a bush lawyer in the sort of thing that I've been doing often. But it did give me the opportunity to work, if you like, at that interface between law, politics and philosophy or questions about justice and building a right society. And that sort of intersection, I found, was territory which wasn't occupied by many people. And being able to develop the capacity to work across disciplines is something which I think was essential. And that's what I've done ever since. And it's that which I most enjoy. You speak with a great sense of confidence now about how all of these things came together, the, the time uh, working with, uh, with Indigenous people, the, de- the various experiences, the legal training, the divinity training. But did you ever have less of that sense of confidence, a worry sure. that perhaps you were being pulled in too many, too many directions? I'm thinking of the young listener who is uh, uh, wondering whether they uh, ought to be studying multiple things or working in, diff- in different fields or whether they ought to hone down and focus on a single thing as, as young people are often advised to do. Sure. And I've often had that experience. And even nowadays, you know, there are times when there are days I think to myself, well, is my life just completely wasted? Uh, Is there really a place for someone at these sorts of intersections? Wouldn't it be better that you were just more solidly embedded in the law or in politics or philosophy? And I think they're good, challenging questions to confront. I suppose in me there's always been a bit of the barrister in the sense of give me a brief and I'll prosecute it. But that brief doesn't have to be in a court, uh, but it can be in the court of public opinion. And it's to say, well, look, what is in our postmodernist age, what is the modern sense of what justice is about for everybody. Now, these are very contested questions, but as I often say, there's nothing better than being in there with a practical issue that has to be addressed, which then forces you to get back to the fundamental basis on which you're arguing your case. And so I think always being open to those possibilities is a good thing and therefore always being open to something which is genuinely new I find to be very helpful. Now you were in some particularly fierce debates through the 1990s and the, the debates yes. over uh, over native title. Uh, you spoke before about uh, the uh, politeness that you brought to the Queensland courts and how you felt that that was a particular asset. But did you feel that being particularly challenged in the highly emotionally charged environment of, of native title? Did it serve you well to to continue being the polite priest in that debate? I think it has served me fairly well. I mean, you're right, there have been some very robust discussions. I remember once turning up in Angonia in western New South Wales during the WIC debate 
I had a mate from Brisbane, Leo White, who um, he'd been a lawyer and he had his own plane. And Leo had said to me, look, you need to get out there and mix with some of these pastoralists in Western Queensland and Western New South Wales because you're only hearing part of the story if you're just with the Aboriginal groups or just in the inner city areas of Australia. And I thought that was very good advice. So Leo, for a couple of months, flew me all around Western New South Wales and Western Queensland. Well, we turned up one day in Angonia. We were running late got in and there was a group of very angry pastoralists who were gathered there. I walked in and a fellow said to me, you should just get back to your presbytery and say your prayers. Well, I mean, I could feel the hairs on the back of my neck bristle, but I was forever grateful to that fellow because I said to him, I said, you know, I do believe in the power of prayer, but I don't think something like Wick can be solved by prayer alone. And then the second thing I said was, yeah, it'd be great if you, the pastoralists and the mining companies and the Aborigines could get together and cut a deal. But let's face it, you haven't managed to do that. Now, I'm not a miner, I'm not a pastoralist, and I'm not an Aborigine. Maybe, just maybe, having a few honest brokers in the debate might help trying to find some form of resolution. And generally, I think that's been the case. Now, I mean, definitely, it got very hairy there in 98, and we had Paul Keating, who'd come out of retirement, to offer the observation that I was just a meddling priest and was better off out of it. But that was at a time when what was being attempted was a very difficult, poisonous political cocktail. You and your listeners might remember the balance of power at the time was held by Brian Harradine, yes. who was a well-known Catholic senator from Tasmania. John Howard was the Prime Minister. Nick Minchin was driving a hard deal in terms of what was going to result out of native title. It had already been through the Senate a couple of times. Uh, you had one nation being successful in the Queensland election. There were questions about whether there'd be a double dissolution. Extraordinarily complex politics. But as I look back, I think being there, trying to be an honest broker, though of course there are often misunderstandings, but I think trying to be an honest broker, I think that's been a useful task. And it's one of the reasons actually why I've always written a lot after the event. So I've published books on all of the campaigns I've been involved in, mm. which I have seen as a way of trying to be accountable to my public and the public generally as to well, what the hell was Brennan up to and where does it go in the future. So that's how I've seen it. Do they also act as something of a form of therapy, allow you, allowing you to work through the sort of the uh, intense emotional cauldron that you've, you've been in in these debates? They do, although usually working through that cauldron, I try and do that more in the personal relationships involved and trying to keep them in good repair mm. and also in my basic spiritual life, you know, my daily and weekly, monthly, annual sort of prayer cycles, that sort of thing. But definitely, I mean, there have been hurts and there continue to be hurts. I mean, just look at some of the things still going on in the Aboriginal area in terms of constitutional recognition or whatever. You were asked at one point to withdraw from uh, from, from heavy activism in the in, in the WIC debate, weren't you? Mm. Uh, which... I think you've described as being one of the, the most per, uh, personally challenge, challenging moments. How do you then uh, deal with that yourself? How, how's the, how, does the, how does the healing process operate uh, for somebody who is an expert in helping others to go through emotional healing? Are there particular people you draw upon? Uh, do you use meditation? Uh, what advice do you have for others who are going through mm. that sort of very tough, quite public, uh, painful process? I mean, definitely for me, meditation is important. Each year I do an eight-day eight annual retreat, and uh, that's a, a time of silent prayer and usually have a spiritual director for that retreat and making sure that, you know, those issues that have been bubbling away during the mm. year, that you bring them, as I say, to the Lord. Uh, and that I have generally found fairly therapeutic. But the other thing that's always been important is having uh, close friends with whom you can talk through these things. And I've also been privileged, of course, with family members who know a lot about some of these sorts of issues and being able to reflect on those things. 
It was often difficult for me the years my father was on the high court because there were all sorts of things we couldn't talk about. But I found once he was off the high court, uh, it was much easier to have those sorts of conversations, which was good. Did you ever feel overshadowed by having such a, a prominent father? I mean, he's on the High no. Court bench 1981-1998, which is really, as, as your career is, is bringing you into the public spotlight. No, not overshadowed. Uh, I think maybe if I'd gone to the bar full-time, it would have been a different situation. Mm. But given that I was off, you know, I'd become a Jesuit, I was ordained a priest in 1985, and uh, it's not as if I wasn't out there in the spotlight myself. Uh, So, I mean, my father used to often have a joke that sometime he'd turn up at an airport terminal or whatever and people would be saying, uh, oh, you know, are you Frank's father? Well, uh, you know, no, I just happen to be the Chief Justice of Australia, that sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but what did he do well as being a, uh, a, a busy, a busy, busy, prominent dad? Uh, what, uh, what, uh, what could others learn from him? I suppose I'm th- thinking of this as a father, a father of three, who's always kind of uh, worried about not doing a good enough job as a as a parent while I try and manage public duties. I think that was a constant tension for him, and I would say, no disrespect to him, I dare say, if he were doing it now in the present generation, he'd be doing it very differently. I mean, I think ours was the classic family, a professional family of those days, where yes, my father educated as a lawyer, my mother educated as a doctor but she was the one who had to forego everything professionally and bring up seven children. And Dad was very much the father who was often absent. I remember once one of my sisters playing at home with her children and Dad on the floor playing around as the grandfather and she said, uh, well, isn't he a great-grandfather? And someone said, well, yes, he is, but that's because he never had time to be a father. Now, that wasn't quite true, but there were times of great absences I remember during the early 70s when I was studying at home uh, doing law at Queensland University and Dad was the senior counsel for the Aborigines in the Woodward Royal Commission on Aboriginal Land Rights. Now that meant he had to be away in the Northern Territory for weeks and weeks on end Mm. and there was Mum, you know, bringing up seven kids at home including uh, teenagers who were at university, etc. But we were able to reach the stage I remember where I, on one occasion mum phoned dad and dad said he was going to be another week away and mum said well that's all right we're just going to buy into the cellar every night and Frank and I are going to sit around at dinner and every night you're away from now on we will drink a bottle of Henschke Hill of Grace 1968 and we did. <laughs> so the fact that we were able to engage in that sort of banter shows that some of the tensions that were there did find some resolution. But I think definitely when I look at my own family now, generation to generation, I think it's the big area where there's been very fundamental change in Mm. terms of gender roles and playing a role as parent while still being a busy professional person. So 1999 sees you in East Timor uh, as uh, Director of the Jesuit Refugee Service. Did you arrive um, just after the vote had taken place? No, well, I I mean, I made my first visit there in 99 at the invitation of Bishop Bellow, but then I didn't go to run the Jesuit Refugee Service there until 2001. And yes, so it was after the vote and I was then the Director of the Refugee Service for 15 months. How did you find that experience? For me, it was a wonderful experience. It was, a, I mean, a short-term emergency. They needed someone to put up their hand to go there as the director. I said, well, I don't have any particular experience in this, but I'm more than happy to give it a go. And for me, it was a wonderful experience. I had a staff of about 30, half of whom would have been locals, and we had teams down on the border at Maliana and Suai and also a team in the capital there in Dili and the privilege of being able to work with people who had been so internally displaced was fantastic Uh, and it really opened my eyes on just how cynical politics could be because I thought there were some things we Australians did there at the time which were not very acceptable. And you've spoken too about the contrast between those in East and West Timor and the sense of uh, in the West Timor camps of a closed world that was dominated by fear. Uh, people who in some cases had done awful wrongs, others who'd just been on the side of the wrongdoers. Uh, did that make you feel 
differently about good guys and bad guys in the world and the kind of normal dichotomy that we draw? It did, and the complexity of these things and what does it mean actually to work towards reconciliation. Uh, I think I'd first had my insight into that, Andrew, back in 1987 when I had a few months working in one of the big refugee camps on the Thai-Cambodian border. And uh, that was an amazing experience because it was at a time when the world was trying to find solutions to these things. And uh, the question was whether or not some sort of coalition could be built so that Cambodia could restore itself to some sort of normalcy. And I remember one day sitting around with one of the camp leaders who just looked at me and he said, uh, the Khmer Rouge killed my wife and three of my four children. There is no way I can ever trust them again. And yet here were we in the West saying, well, what we've got to do is form some sort of coalition which can bring people together. So I think ever since 1987, I had been meeting people who had gone through extraordinarily traumatic family and other political experiences which were almost irresolvable. And yet there was a need at times for them to be able to affect some form of reconciliation in order that a political solution might be found. So what I've been left with ever since on those sorts of things is appreciating that it's very easy to make simplistic judgments about right and wrong when you're not actually a party to these things. Mm. But when you're a party to it, then it all becomes much more complex and things are much less black and white and far more things appear to be grey. Are you somebody who tries to practice the uh, the notion of agape, of uh, uh, a love for for all, even for the, un, uh, the, the unlovable? I am, and I do take very seriously the principle of Catholic social teaching of the preferential option for the poor or reaching out to the one who is on the margins in that how can you really affirm a notion of the innate dignity of every human person? How can you really affirm the idea of the universality of love, of agape, unless it is extended to the person who is on the margins? Now, the challenge for all of us who espouse anything universal is particularly in the globalised world of which we're a part, I mean, at the very most, we'll be able to help a handful of people, and yet here we are daring to profess something which is so universal. But I think there's still something fairly deep in the human spirit about wanting to profess universal ideals, but I think it's living with those tensions which is the thing. And often nowadays, for those of us from mainstream churches, particularly in an increasingly secularised environment like Australia, those who look from the outside on those of us trying to live lives true to religious principles often just see us as hypocrites. Well, in a sense, we are hypocrites. That is, there's a huge divide and chasm, and always will be, between that which is professed as the universal ideal and that which can be lived practically day to day. You've also found engaging with Indigenous community or engaging with Indigenous communities has been one of the hallmarks of, uh, of your public activism. How do you manage to maintain the human relationships, not to spend your entire time uh, working with the powerful but uh, sitting on the ground chatting with uh, with Indigenous elders. Are there mm. particular communities that you're close to that you visit regularly? Uh, there used to be. It's less the case now. But there are still communities and individuals with whom I maintain strong contact. For example, the community at Nayunambiu, Daly River in the Northern Territory, is a community to which I've always been close. So, for example, two years ago when I published my book No Small Change, which was arguing the case for what is now unfashionably called minimalist symbolic change in the Constitution, uh, I dedicated that book to a young Aboriginal man who I knew on that community at Daly River, a young man who at 22 years of age, like sadly so many young Aboriginal men on those sorts of communities, took his own life after many years of attempting suicide, living in that divide between the two worlds. And as I say in that book, uh, 
the great anthropologist Stanner once drew the dichotomy between living in the market and living in the dreaming. And he said, and if you wanted to design two systems of thought as diverse as possible, they would be the dreaming in the market. Now, as I say, and as I experience in my relationships with Aboriginal people in Australia today, I think there are no Aboriginal people more secure in their identity than those who have a secure foothold in both the dreaming and the market. But there are no Aboriginal people in Australia who have a less secure identity than those who do not have a secure foothold in either. And what we see in a lot of these young Aboriginal men on these remote communities is precisely that situation. So for me, it's always been important to maintain contact with those sorts of individuals and those families. Mm. But the other thing for me has been that there have been key Aboriginal leaders who over decades now I have maintained good relationships. So even when the politics gets messy, that those good and robust relationships are there. So for example, when I write the book No Small Change, my great friend Patricia Turner writes a foreword to it. And just recently, as you may have seen, I was very privileged to give the Lower oration at the personal request of Lower Chur O'Donoghue for the 50th anniversary of the 1967 referendum. Now, Lower two years ago, contacted me and said, look, I'm wanting you to do this oration on the 50th anniversary. But as it then turned out, it was a week or two after the Uluru Declaration, and I thought, well, maybe this is something of a poison chalice for a white fella in this sort of situation. But then to be able to turn up and to have Lower saying to people, I want you to listen to the wisdom of Father Frank, then that is an enormous privilege and mm. an enormous honour from such an esteemed Aboriginal elder. So they're the things which sustain you through the difficult times. Yes. I'm often struck reading your speeches at uh, the extent to which you quote others. Uh, they're, they're chock full of quotes. Mm. And sometimes I almost feel like it's difficult to get a sense as to, as to what Frank thinks. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you tend to... Uh, quote others through a sense of modesty? Is it wanting to keep your options open? Uh, is it uh, a desire to be to embed others in your conversation? Where does that come? So that style of writing and speaking come from? Um, <clears throat> on one level, you might say it's almost a judicial style in terms of quoting precedent or quoting the authorities or whatever, but. Often, it, I mean, it depends on the sort of topic which I'm addressing, but particularly in relation to issues to do with Indigenous Australia, uh, I'm long convinced that uh, it's the Indigenous voices that need to be heard. And often, like when I've been asked to butt out, it's been, well, look, Frank, you're not helping if you're there giving the shorthand answer, which is palatable to the whitefellas. That's not good enough. And so... I've always seen it as important to try to be, if you like, the carrier of the message that then comes from those who have the authority and indicating that I am not the one who has that sort of authority. Mm. But outside of Indigenous type issues, I think what you'll find is that where I'm quoting others, it's in terms of deference to their academic qualifications or to their uh, deeper experience with the issue which is being addressed, in that often with someone like myself, I'm asked to come in and offer commentary or to assist because I'm seen as someone who can be something of a translator for the ordinary listener. And so I'm very anxious to make it clear that it's not my authority, but rather that of those who are far more learned or far more experienced than myself. Which is fascinating because I don't think most Australians would regard someone of your eminence speaking about human rights and Indigenous reconciliation as a translator rather than an authority. No. It's really interesting to hear you talk, talk of yourself in those terms. Although the other thing to say is that, as you may have noted, I am pretty good at speaking off the cuff, but I, as I have often said, I will 
make sure that there is a sufficient number of written speeches I have each year where even if I have the written speech, often I won't use that text directly, but I do find that the discipline of writing keeps me disciplined then even in my off-the-cuff remarks, that unless you've written it, then you tend to be too loose with your language and with your concepts. Yes. But if you have written it, then you're far more at liberty than to get up and deliver. For example, I was up in Cairns the other day and I spoke at the opening keynote address. I was asked to speak on challenges confronting the Catholic Church. It was a national conference of 400 Catholic educators. Now there, I basically spoke off the cuff but that was the culmination of about 18 months of speeches I'd been giving on challenges which are confronting the church. Mm. And I knew I was finally in the space where I could just give of myself in relation to that sort of topic. Uh, on that particular question, what do you think of that old uh, saying of Mum Shirl, that there's nothing out of plumb with the Catholic religion, it's the way Catholics practice it? Oh, well, she's absolutely right. And you know, one of my great experiences, of course, was I spent a couple of months as Mum Shell's driver then when I was working for Ted Kennedy, and she was just an absolute bottler. I mean, the thing with Shell was her religious faith was through every part of her being, but she was so ever practical and confronted anybody and everybody. And there you could be, she would be barging into a house dragging a young Aboriginal fellow out of bed to bring him into court. And then she'd be into the court and telling the Supreme Court judge in no uncertain terms what he should be doing in terms of the sentence. And I used to think, well, she's about the only person on earth who could do it both with the young Aboriginal fellow getting out of bed and the judge. Uh, but with her, it always came out of that very fundamental religious faith that she had. Uh, and the uh, the nickname, as I understand it, comes from uh, her getting sick of being questioned by corrections officers to relationship with young Indigenous men and saying, uh, uh, who are you? And she would just respond, I'm his mum. Uh, <laughs> and uh, she was everyone's mum. Yeah. <laughs> an extraordinary woman. Uh, you're, um, you've, t as a, as, as a, priest taken a lifetime vow of, uh, of chastity, mm. and uh, I think for many of us that's that's almost one of the hardest things to get our head around sure. about a, a life a life mm. of uh, in the ministry how do you find that intimacy with others that that many of us uh find throughout our close sexual relationships mm. uh it is an ongoing challenge for me in life in that um as i once said in an interview with maxine McHugh many years ago uh, what i miss is what i would call the intimate accountability uh, I think, you know, where you've got a lifetime partner, then, you know, day in, day out, night in, night out, I mean, you're, you're being accountable in an intimate way and being made accountable. I remember once uh, I was here at some whiz-bang conference at ANU and um, I was with my mate Pat Keane, who's now on the High Court, of course, and we both came back to the Hyatt Hotel here where Pat was staying with his wife, Shelley, and uh, we sat down and had a drink in their room after the conference and Pat and I were both carrying on, you know, about how brilliantly we'd spoken or whatever. <laughs> and Shelley gave us a dressing down and told Pat to wake up to himself and all of that. And I came home that night and I thought, well, who is there to do that for me day mm. in and day out? Mm. And the, I mean, the short answer is there isn't anyone. But for me, I mean, I have been blessed with, I mean, very good, close personal friendships, including some very close women friends. But I have to admit that that sort of daily intimate accountability, that's not there. And I think that's a real risk in this sort of life. Now, the other thing to say is it's a sort of life, it can only be lived, I think, where there is a sort of community acceptance of it and a community support for it. And I think a lot of that has dropped away, particularly in a society like Australia of late. And I know I get into trouble often with some of my Jesuit brothers when I've said, but I repeat it. I mean, I joined the Jesuits when I was 21 and I was very happy to do so. 
I'm still happy in the life and I'll see it through, I'm sure. But if I were 21 today, I don't know that I would be joining the Jesuits or any other religious order. And I think that's a major challenge for us now in terms of the Catholic Church and where it goes in the Western world and where we find the people who will be those who are the leaders of the sacraments and issues of that sort. Mm Uh, Finally, let me ask you a a few broader questions. Uh, Sure. What what advice would you give to your teenage self? To my teenage self, I would say go with your passions and uh, just wherever they might lead you, go with your passions, but make sure that in your relationships, particularly with your elders, that you have a capacity for relating accountably as to what it is that you're pursuing in those passions. And don't be worried about, you know, what will be my career definition uh, or where I'll be in five or ten years. I mean, Our generation of teenagers in Australia today are some of the freest people creation has ever known and go with it and uh, believe in it. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Oh, for example, I mean, uh, on Indigenous issues, I believe very strongly, and I wrote the book No Small Change, on the need for minimal what's now called minimal symbolic change to the Constitution. Uh, Now, I no longer believe in that in the sense that I don't think that is deliverable because I think key Indigenous leaders have said that that's not good enough. Now, I mean, I do remain of the view, despite everything that's been said by all sorts of Indigenous leaders, I still think something would be better than nothing. Uh, But I think we're going to end up with nothing, sadly. But I do believe that if you look at the lessons from 1967, it was minimal symbolic change which won overwhelming political support, which provided the political imperative for real and substantial change. Now, I believed until two years ago that we as a nation could repeat that. I don't think we can repeat it now. That saddens me, but yes, I've changed that belief. Which is a big change to be saying, given that you're uh, you're effectively talking about an entire book there. Uh, When are you most happy? I'm most happy when I have a sense that I've helped somebody in a very practical way. And particularly when I've helped someone who is just assured that they can get on now with living their lives as they want to live it with dignity and with respect. And uh, for me, that's extraordinarily affirming. I mean, to give an example, sometimes, I mean, I work on the roster doing the prison masses here in Canberra. There are sometimes, particularly on a winter afternoon, I'll drive out there on a Sunday afternoon and I'll think, oh dear, I'm going to have to say mass three or four times this afternoon in different cell blocks, and it really is very demanding. But then when you sit down with a group of young fellows and they open up in their prayer about their families, about their loved ones, and at the end of it, as they walk out and they thank you, it's just, it's wonderful. Because you know that for many of them, the possibility of just an ordinary human encounter Mm. where their dignity is affirmed and where their love for their kids is something which is espoused, it's so often just not there. So I'm happy when those little things can happen. Is that your... uh your only ministry in, in Canberra? Oh, no. Does no, 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 no. I help out in the parish, particularly at Curtin and Garen. Right. And, so one doesn't um, have to go to uh, Alexander oh, no, you don't, in order to hear your You don't have to sermons. be in prison to hear me preach. Right. Uh, uh, what's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Well, in terms of physical health, I mean, I, I've never been a great uh, exercise buff, but I went to a school reunion a few years ago and I found that the big rugby players, they'd all gone to fat. Hmm. Uh, so for me, I've always done about as much exercise as I've ever done, and that's been good. I did go along to my GP in January this year and he said to me, uh, Frank, you're getting to an age where you're starting to put on weight and if you don't do anything about it, you'll continue to do so. And that's not good. So I've lost weight this year and I'm feeling all the better for it. And uh, I think just the discipline of that is good. In terms of my sort of general spiritual psychological state, uh, 
I think for me, the annual eight-day retreat is absolutely essential. But the other thing is to keep up a variety of reading. And uh, like... I was just looking the last few days, a couple of new books have come in. Jeremy Waldron, who's given all the big jurisprudential lectures, he's just done a new book of lectures on um, equality uh, among equals. And then Alastair McIntyre, the American philosopher, writing on uh, ethics in conflicts in modernity. And those sorts of things stimulate me and bring me back to a sense of just how enlivening it is to be part of a human intellectual community where there can be such diversity of viewpoints, but to draw real relish from that. And then, of course, in the summer, to just get out there in the surf is, uh, for me, unbeatable. Do you, are you an early riser? Do you, send, do you start the day with uh, writing rather than reading? Do you have some... No, I start the day... I mean, I'm not all that an early riser. I get up about 20 past six. Uh, but for me, the day starts with prayer. And for me, that's absolutely essential. Just being able to be grounded and to reflect on the scriptures of the day uh, gives me a good way forward. Then what I like to do is to work at my desk for an hour or so before I go into the office. That gives me the opportunity to do some of the better thinking that needs to be done before Mm. just uh, addressing the day-to-day routines that arise. But then uh, I have to travel a lot in the work that I do. And I find that making the space for the thinking is important. But then when I have to write something which is important, usually I need a good deadline. So I can be someone who uh, delays and delays, but then I say to myself, now is the time to do it. The other great thing for me here in Canberra, I find the National Library is a wonderful resource. Mm. And so to be able to just go and spend an hour there looking at a few papers, etc., is fantastic. I mean, for example, at the end of the month, I've got to give the Lionel Bowen lecture in Randwick. And Lionel is someone I long admired but never knew very well. Now, I looked up just the other day and I see there's 300 pages of transcript of his oral history there in the National Library. So it's on order at the moment. In the next few days, I'll get in, I'll spend an hour or two a day just, you know, musing on what Lionel Bowen thought of life. That sort of thing is great. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh... No, I don't think I do. Uh, But that's probably because I don't feel guilty about them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I get to to travel a lot. I'd I'd actually like to have a few more guilty pleasures. I'd like to... Like, I was up in Cairns last week and I gave too many talks and had no time to, you know, get out to the reef or something like that. So now that I'm 63, I did get back on the plane and I thought to myself... You know, it really is time you started factoring in a day where you just get out there and see the reef again, particularly given the bleaching that's going on. Um, not going to be able to do it in 10 or 20 years' time. So guilty pleasures are on your to-do list. Then. They are. Uh, and finally, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Well, I mean, the two have influenced me most in terms of what it is to be a lawyer who lives with integrity in the public square in Australia have been my father and Sir William Dean. And, I mean, I think they're two of the all-time greats and I've been very privileged to know them both very closely. Uh, And for me, that's been a wonderful thing. On the other side of things, I mean, in the Jesuit order, I've been privileged to know quite a lot of Jesuits who are just absolutely wonderful fellows. And I have had the privilege every 10 years to spend a year or so at a Jesuit university in the United States, usually Boston College or at Georgetown University. And there are a few of the Jesuits there who are really outstanding academics, very passionate about justice and about theology, and to them I'm greatly indebted. Father Frank Brennan, thank you for joining us in the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks for all that you do and all the best in the future of your public life. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier 
and more ethical life.